0: Try. Mm-hmm. You don't have to try up off, let your hair down, take a breath, look into the mirror, at yourself, don't you like you? Cause I like you. Good morning. I am not Andrea Smith. She is the pastor here at West, and she is on a mission trip to Uganda right now. So if you would keep that team in your prayers this week as they're traveling home, I'm sure they would appreciate it. My name is um, Reverend Christy Dillon. Um, I am a third grade teacher. I teach at an awesome school up in Statesville, and I try to help out Andrea um, whenever she needs me. Um, I also help do the online chat every other week, so to um, all of my friends on chat, good morning, and uh, we extend a special welcome to you. This morning, um, our scripture is from Genesis, and it's Genesis chapter 1, and I realize it's kind of a long scripture, but I wanted to be true to the text. Um, It annoys me sometimes when people just pull out Bible verses and use them however they want to. So I wanted to read the whole thing, and I'll tell you what I tell my third graders. If you've already heard this, just sit back and relax and listen, and maybe you'll hear something in a new way. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. Put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps Upon the ground of every kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The main theme of this section of Genesis is that God and God's creation are bound together in a distinctive and delicate way by the powerful, gracious movement of God towards creation. The binding that's established by God does not need to be explained or analyzed. It can only be confirmed and confessed. The text invites the listening community to celebrate that reality. The binding is irreversible. It can't be nullified. And the method of the binding is speech. It's simply by God's speech that the relation of creation is determined. By God's speech, that which did not exist comes into being. Creation by God's speech shows God's authority. God authors life, but notice there's no hint of authoritarianism. This text is likely to be dated back to the 6th century B.C., And addressed to exiled Israel. If you remember at that time, the Babylonian gods appeared to have defeated the dreams of the God of Israel. While our interpretation shouldn't be limited to the exile situation, we should also not leave it out because it enhances the truth of the claims made for the God of Israel. The exiled Israel was trying to find faith for this God when they were experiencing. Babylon, that denied this God. And so for us, it continues to be a ground of faith in our God when our experience seems to be against it. It affirms that God can be trusted in the face of sickness and poverty, unemployment, loneliness, every human experience of abandonment. This text makes a theological claim that a word has been spoken that transforms reality. The theological claim is about the character of God, who's bound to the world, and about the world that's bound to God. The text proclaims a newness, which places the world in a situation that previously did not exist. The known world is now a new world, surging with the mystery of God's grace and empowering speech. The good news is that God and God's creation are bound in a relation that's assured but at the same time, it's precarious. This relation is grounded in a mystery of faithful commitment. Everything else depends on this commitment. This is not a relation of coercion. It is free, gracious commitment and invitation. This text affirms God's grace towards the whole of creation. This creation faith is the church's confession that all of life is characterized by graciousness. The text also proclaims that creation is a source of joy and delight, both for the creator and the created. Between the creator and the created, there's a closeness, yet there's also a distance. The closeness concerns God's attentiveness to the creation day by day. God did not just speak it into being and then walk away. In the closeness of trust, there's also a distance, which allows the creation its own freedom of action. In other words, the creation is not overpowered by its creator. The creator not only cherishes, but honors and respects it. The two stand distinct from each other. Each has its own way in the relationship. One will not be restricted by the other one. The grace of God is that all creatures whom God has caused to be, God lets be freedom to be. In verses 3 through 25, we notice that Creator God is not totally preoccupied with humans. God has a relationship with the rest of creation. They are also faithful, valued creatures. In verse 22, the creatures are blessed. This is the first blessing of the text and the first blessing of the Bible, and it's not for humankind, but it's for the other creatures. In verse 27, the special clustering of the word create suggests the text wishes to focus now on the creation of humankind. The closest the distance that we talked about earlier applies especially to humankind. Human persons are honored, respected, and enjoyed by the one who calls them to be, and this gives humans their identity. It's important for us to notice that in all eight acts of creation God only speaks directly to humans. This human creature has a different intimate relation with the creator. This is the the one that God has made an intense commitment to by speaking, and to whom marvelous freedom has been granted. In 26 through 29, the text makes a bold confession. This helps us understand God and humankind in new ways. The Creator is humanized as one who deeply cares for the world, and the human is entrusted with the power to rule. But this God governs through gracious self-giving. Men and women are agents of God to whom much is given and expected. The miracle and celebration are in this new understanding of both. In verse 27, humankind is spoken as singular and plural. This makes an important affirmation. On one hand, humankind is a single identity. But on the other hand, humankind is a community, male and female. None is the full image of God alone. Only in community is God reflected. It's an explicit call to form a new kind of human community in which the members, after the manner of the gracious God, are attentive in calling each other to full being in fellowship. A young man named Peter DeVito is a student at the Fashion Institute of Technology. He did a photo series to normalize some common skin conditions. He was inspired by the body positivity movement, and he wanted to contribute. He said, I love seeing posts about people accepting themselves and how they look. He found his models through Instagram and friend suggestions, and he told them to use words that other people have said to them or a phrase based on a stigma about their skin. You'll see the words on their face as you see the pictures. Here are some of the pictures of his work. This young man saw God's image in these young people and reminded us that we are all beautiful. Why is it so hard for us to see ourselves as we really are in the image of God? The early church believed that God's love for us as human beings precedes, enables, and gives meaning to all human love. This love that God has for us goes back to our very creation. God brought human beings into existence As images of God's own self, simply because of love. God loves us unwaveringly as a mother loves her baby. Sin does not destroy God's love for us. God's love is there, whether or not we can feel it. Each of us has been given God's image that can never be completely lost. God's image in us may be partially erased or covered over, but something in us still recognizes God. They believe that no matter how thoughtless a person might seem to be, that there's goodness in every human that connects us to God. The early church's belief in the persistence of God's image actually goes against one of the most widespread modern Christian convictions, that in the sight of God, human beings are lower than worms. I'm sure you've heard that before. Think about that for a second. If our goal is love, love God, love neighbor, love self? Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because self-hatred is destructive of our ability to love. Since we're made in God's image, we're related to God and to each other. Therefore, we cannot love God and hate ourselves. To many of us, loving means that as Jesus gave up his life for others, that we should give up ourselves for the sake of others. In a sense, this is true. All love requires self-giving. The problem is when we're tempted to think that Christian love is so sacrificial that Christians shouldn't have a self at all. Our culture reinforces the belief that real Christian women, especially, should not have a self at all. That we must give ourselves up for the needs of husbands, families, friends, churches. So we overcommit. We never say no. We fill up our schedules. We give ourselves permission to overfunction, and we call it being a good Christian as we're collapsing under self-inflicted burdens. The early Christians knew there cannot be love of others or love of God when there's no self to do the loving. We can't throw away ourselves or neglect it while still being able to love those that we desire to love. This is the way that we're made. Our self is given by God. It's in the image of God. Its identity is in God, and its primary, primary relationship is to God. We belong to God. In the movie Toy Story, we find a great illustration that answers questions such as, who am I? Um, On what things do I base my worth? What happens when the things that always defined me change? Toy Story is about a world where toys pretend to be lifeless in the presence of humans, but they actually have life and personalities of their own. Woody, a pole string cowboy toy, is the leader of a group of toys belonging to a boy named Andy. At his birthday party, Andy receives a spaceman action figure named Buzz Lightyear. However, Buzz actually believes he is a real space ranger who has crash-landed and must return to his home planet, while Woody tries to convince him he's only a toy. Buzz has lots of impressive features and ends up replacing Woody as Andy's favorite. This causes Woody to resent Buzz. Through a series of events, Woody and Buzz both end up in the possession of Andy's neighbor, Sid. Now Sid doesn't just play with toys, he delights in maiming and destroying them. His room and his yard are littered with exploded toys and other toys now composed of parts from other toys shoved together, and Woody and Buzz attempt to escape Sid's house. But during the attempt, Buzz sees a television commercial for Buzz Lightyear action figures, and he realizes Woody's right, he's a toy, he's not a real space ranger. This causes him to lose all sense of purpose and hope, and their escape attempt fails. Sid straps a huge firework rocket to Buzz's back, intending to shoot him up into the sky and watch him explode. Only a thunderstorm delays his plan. So the night before Andy and his family and all his toys are going to move to their new home, Woody and Buzz find themselves in the house next door, in Sid's room, with Woody captive under a crate, and Buzz despondent over the fact that he's only a toy. Take a look. Psst. Psst. Hey, Buzz! Hey, get over here and see if you can get this toolbox off me. i buzz i can't do this without you i need your help i can't help i can't help anyone What sure you can buzz you can get me out of here and then i'll get that rocket off you and we'll make a break for andy's house andy's house sid's house what's the difference oh buzz you've had a big fall you, you must not be thinking clearly no woody for the first time i am thinking clearly You were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid, little, insignificant toy. Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a a space ranger. Yeah, right. No, it is. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. But why would Andy want me? Why would Andy want you? Look at you. You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that 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 whoosh thing. You are a cool toy. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean, I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is... There's a snake in my boots. Why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. about me. You should get out of here while you can. Buzz! What are you doing? I thought you... Come on, Sheriff. There's a kid over in that house who needs us. Now let's get you out of this thing. Yes, sir! Buzz is hopeless. Everything on which he based his view of his worth and self, the fact that he was a space ranger, has been proven false. To use his words, I'm just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. How many times have we said some similar words? I'm just blank. We too feel little and insignificant. We too feel that whatever we are, it's not enough. We may even feel successful by many standards, and yet we're still not sure if successful makes us lovable. We feel like we don't matter. Buzz has lost any sense of hope and purpose when Woody tells him, Look, over in that house, there's a kid that thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And after that exchange, Buzz looks down at the bottom of his foot to find where Andy has written his name there with a permanent marker, a sign that Buzz belongs to Andy. Buzz's value isn't found in what he does or who he is or isn't. It is found in whose he is. He belongs to Andy. Many voices in our world say, you're lovable if you do this or have this or look like this or have this many followers or this many friends. Sometimes in this world, we find that I love you is followed with an if or a but. Some of us have experienced people who have loved us only to leave or betray us. And there are the voices and fears within us. They say, people wouldn't love me if they knew the real me. The failures of our past may weigh heavy. Something someone else has done to us has made us feel worthless and ashamed. We may feel like we don't measure up to standards of others. We may struggle with depression or anxiety, and it leaves us feeling paralyzed and useless. We may even have lives that look successful to others. We may look like someone who has it all together. And deep inside, we're haunted by questions as to whether we truly matter, if we're truly worthy of being. Maybe this morning, the words of a talking toy cowboy can in turn cause these words to echo into our own lives. In this life is a God who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because of what you've accomplished or look like or a thousand other things we turn to for value. It's because you are God's child. Genesis 1.27 tells us God has created us in God's image. We're created in God's likeness, the imprint of God, is on who we are. It's as if God has written God's name on your foot with a permanent marker. We come up with all kinds of labels for ourselves. Others are quick to add their own labels as well. And we carry around with us all the things that we think identify who we are, for better or for worse. So whatever label you or others use to describe who you are, it pales in comparison to this one. Loved you are loved by god period no if you will only no but added no fine print or terms and conditions you are loved more than you can imagine with a love more faithful and relentless than you dare hope is possible you are loved and have value and worth simply because you are gods it's interesting that in the video clip from toy story Woody's able to help Buzz understand the source of his worth and value, but then he questions his own because he doesn't feel like he can compare to Buzz. Woody forgets it's not about how we measure up to others. Andy's name is on his foot, too. How easy it is to forget or struggle to trust this truth about who we are. I wrestle with this often, and maybe you do, too. I think that's why this is a truth that we need to be reminded of over and over. It's a truth that we can never hear enough because there's plenty of voices within us and around us wanting to tell us something else. We need to be reminded of who we are. We need to be reminded of whose we are. You belong to God. You are God's deeply loved child. Your life bears God's image. Would you pray with me while the team comes up to sing our last song? God, we thank you so much for this beautiful creation that you have made and given us to take care of. God, we thank you for giving us your image and for reminding us that everything that you do is in love. And God, we ask that you be with us through this week and help us to show others love in your name i pray amen and now hear these words as your benediction image of god born of god's breath vessel of divine love after god's likeness dwelling of god capacity for the infinite eternally known chosen of god home of infinite majesty abiding in the Son called from eternity, life in the Lord, temple of the Holy Spirit, branch of Christ, receptacle of the Most High, wellspring of living water, heir of the kingdom, the glory of God, abode of the Trinity. This is who you are. Amen. Amen.